There are tears on my pillow that won't dry on their own beyond my ears. I've no sorrow, but today I don't walk alone. Welcome to the Fort, Lauder, Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Groups, Thursday Night Alcoholics and God, Speaker Step Series. Let's have Spencer with our joke. Hi, I'm Spencer and I'm an alcoholic. All right. This is from Take Me to Your Sponsor. These are the best jokes in cartoons from A.A. Grigmine. A newcomer told his sponsor that he was engaged in a, cu a major custody battle. His wife doesn't want him, and his mother won't take him back. <laughs> I'm a recovering alcoholic. My name is Brandon. Thanks for, jo thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to going to start our two-minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise that might slash will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? All right, let's start the meditation.
fog light prayer. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light, so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Brooks to come up and read Spiritual Experience, Appendix 2. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Hey, everyone. I'm Brooks. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Brooks. Spiritual Experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among a rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. 
Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Thank you. Thank you, Brooks. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane slash meeting mode or just turn it off. Tonight we have Pat on the 8th and ninth step, and I'm really excited for the message he's going to share. So let's have Pat. My name is Pat. Thanks to the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous outlined in our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the program of AA, uh, I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and for that I'll be forever grateful. Uh, AA didn't just save my life, but it gave me a new life, and uh, absolutely love my new life, enjoy my life, and, and I'm happy to be here tonight. And I'm always like kind of awkward when I get to eight and nine because I always feel like there's new people in the room and, and I just want to tell the new people, don't start here. You know, <laughs> you know like I always want to like go back and like, I'm, I'm glad you don't do the chips because if you had and somebody had picked up a white chip, I, they would have blown the whole talk that I had rehearsed all the way here uh, right out the window, which by the way, won't come out anyway. But, uh, but we are at eight and nine and, uh, and all the work that I did uh, up to this point put me in a position where I'd even be willing to go out and uh, make any amends and do anything in 8 and 9, or, or, or even put me in a position where anybody would accept any amends from me uh, because, uh, because these steps uh, were necessary uh, for me to get here. I needed to really take a good look at myself. I really needed to do a good fourth step and see the truth about myself. You know, they told me in the third step that I was selfish and self-centered and driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity. And I had to find out if that was true because what's it say right after that? We usually don't think so. You know, we usually think it's their fault. I'm just a victim of, of uh, bad circumstances and, and, and wrong place at the wrong time and misunderstandings. And, you know, and, and I didn't blame me for anything. I was a victim when I got here, you know. She took my house. She took my kids. You know, she took the car. You know, I'm, I, I tell, my, tell you myself, I'm sleeping in the back room of my mother's. I used to have all this, and, and now I'm here in AA. You know, and uh, man, I saw the truth. I, 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 uh, once I saw the truth about myself, and as the book said, we start looking at it from a different angle, and I realize I am not a victim. I am the perpetrator. You know, I am, I am the guy who has caused all the wreckage. Ninety-five percent of it was my fault. 95% of it was, was me using the tools that I knew, to nav- that I used to navigate life called selfishness, dishonesty, inconsideration, fear. Those were the tools that I used to navigate my life. 
and I realized that, that it was me. It wasn't them. And as I shared with you guys when I, when I shared about my fifth step is that, that I had an experience in step five. You know, it was more than just feedback from another individual. It was more than just a confessing to God the nature of my wrongs. It was, it was an understanding of myself. It was, it was a, I, I, the 12 and 12 talks about humility, and I, I couldn't find it last week, but on the first page of Interaction is where I was looking for humility. You know, there was a, a, a necessary component of humility that I had to acquire to be even put in a position to go out and make any kind of amends. And, and I had, at that point, I did gain some humility in, in that confession and in that feedback from my sponsor. You know, I knew exactly who and what I was. I love the, the 12 and 12. I think it's on 52 where it talks about a, a clear recognition of exactly who and what I am and what I can become, you know, and, and a desire to become what, I, what God would have me be, you know. And, and, and that's where I was in step five. God entered my heart in step five. Uh, not, I know it doesn't happen for everybody. I've heard people have an experience at three. I've heard of, I had mine at five. I know that people have had it at nine. I know people that have it as a result of 10, 11, and 12. You know, we just read the uh, spiritual appendix, which talks about most of us have that more educational variety over a period of time incorporating these principles in our lives. But I had mine at five. You know, I, I had an experience with God at five. And God entered my heart that day in a way which is indeed miraculous, is what this book talks about, and commenced to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. I, had, I knew exactly who and what I was. And I knew exactly that I knew that I didn't want to be that person anymore. I, I, I wanted to, to live by a set of principles. And, and, the, and in six and seven, I was willing to change my behavior. And I knew that the only way to change my behavior was to have God in my life. You know, I think I shared, you know, I see six and seven like steps one and two. You know, I'm powerless over alcohol and all mind and mood-altering substances, and only God can remove the obsession. Well, I'm powerless over my character defects also, and only God can remove those character defects. You know? I have to have God's help. When I'm faced with pleasure versus principles, I need God's help to, to choose principles because my instinct says go for the pleasure. You know? Go for the feel-good. And forget about the consequences and the pleasure. It's the same as the obsession for alcohol. I'm just obsessed with what it's going to do for me. I completely block out what it's going to do to me or the consequences attached to that, that behavior. The same with six and seven. I'm so attached to the pleasure that I'm almost willing to pay the price tomorrow for, for the pleasure today. And only with God's help can I change that. Only with God's help can I become the opposite and use the, the opposite of the tools that I've been using to navigate life up to this point. My life changed there was a transformational change that took place in steps three, four, and five for me. It was necessary. Or I would have never gone out and started to make amends. I would have never considered making amends. First off, nobody would have accepted them for me to, for who I was. There's a reason why six and seven is plugged in between five and eight and nine. Because the traveler needs to show up different. When, when we're making amends to those people in our lives, the people that we've harmed. I need to show up different. You know, and, and it's... This part of the step series really, t- really 
grabs my heart. Uh, you know, it, I, I share with you guys that, that it's, I would much rather do a big book study than a step series because this is like reliving the past, you know. And especially in steps nine, eight and nine, it's, it's I get to relive the damage. I get to relive the wreckage. And, and, I, and like the book says, I don't look back at it with, with morbid reflection. And I know that everything had to take place the way it did for me to be where I'm at today. I know that. I would never have the life today that if circumstances hadn't happened just the way they did. But damn it, I regret who I was back then. I hate that person. I hate that person. You talk about selfish and self-centered. I didn't give a shit who I stepped on. You know, it was all about me, what's in it for me, how much is mine, what about me. You know, it was all about me. I remember I was sitting with Brian when we were going through the steps. We were like reading the doctor's opinion. And I would look at him and I go, am I going to have to call the IRS? (laughs) And he said, Pat, you're on step one. (laughs) There's a reason why there's eight in front of that step. And I said, don't worry about it. We'll worry about it when we get there. And we'd read a couple more pages. And I said, no, no, really. You know, am I going to have to call? Am I going to have to call the credit card company? I mean, am I going to have to call these people up and volunteer? Pat, don't worry about it. Let's let's get these these six, seven steps in. And then we'll worry about steps eight and nine. By the time I got to steps eight and nine, because of the work I did, I wanted more God. I was willing to make the amends. You know what I'm saying? Like I wasn't hiding from it anymore. We talk about lusting to feel good. I, I, for the first time in my life, I found peace in step five without a substance in my body. Now I want to stay there. How do I get more of that? I'm lusting for that. I, I want that. I want more of that. And the way to get more of that is to take more action and, and go out and start doing what's uncomfortable. I did what was uncomfortable. Anybody that's done four and five, five is uncomfortable. Five is the ter- first time we really risk anything. Up until that point, we didn't even have to talk to anybody. And five, we're, we're at risk. We're letting somebody in. We're letting somebody know exactly who and what we are. And there was a great relief in that for me. So now I'm not afraid of going out and, and the consequences of making the amends. It's, it's step eight, it talks about, you know, uh, now we need more action. Uh, we, made a li- we made a list of people we've harmed. We did it in step four. That's probably the shortest step in the book. I mean, we only talk about six and seven being short, but the eighth step is the shortest step because it is really done in a sense because it's, People in our, col- our first columns on our fourth step where we did something to them in column four, they're the people that we harm. That's the beauty of following the directions in the book, by the way. That if you do the fourth step the way it's outlined in the book, you have everything you need for four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Resentment-wise, fear-wise, and harm's done to others. But we go a little bit further we created another sheet because I wanted to get clear and I want my sponsees to get clear and this is just the way I was taught it's not out of the big book but we wanted to get clear on the difference between who I hurt and what I did to them versus what the harm was you know what I did to my mother was I stole money from my mother that wasn't the harm my mother could have cared less about the money 
I was like a ninja, you know. My mother would waitress all night long, just try to support us, and I would crawl on my belly into her. All I needed was like a ski mask and shit, you know. I was like a ninja crawling into her bedroom and going through her purse and stealing her tips, you know, money that she desperately needed to pay her bills. My mother couldn't pay her bills because I stole her money. My mother couldn't trust her own son. My mother had to hide her purse and her jewelry from her son. That's the harm. You know, what did I do wrong? I stole her money. Am I going to apologize for stealing her money? No. I mean, yeah, I'm going to admit the wrong. But that's not the events. There's a big difference. You know, we'll talk more about that. You know, uh, in particular instances where I did damage to somebody's property, it wasn't even about the property. It was the fear that I put into the family that lived on that property. When you break into somebody's house, you're not just stealing their stuff. You're violating their privacy. I know the feeling. Somebody broke into our house. That's a, a, an amazing violation. I mean, I, I was never so taken back, you know, than to have somebody come into our house while we were sleeping and ransack our house with my children in the other room. Now, that's the harm. What did they do wrong or they stole from me? Who cares at that point? Not about the money. We've got some unfinished business, right? We've been treating spiritual sickness. Manifesting itself in resentment and anger and in fear and guilt, remorse, and shame, right? Incorrect thinking, incorrect feelings, and incorrect actions. And I've had a transformation as a result of looking at my resentments and fears, but what about the harms? I want more God. Like Charlie used to always talk about the, the storeroom up here, right? It's, it's got three sections, right? It's got this resentment and anger section. It's got this fear section. It's got this guilt, remorse, and, sh- and shame section from us hurting other people. Well, we re- we've removed the resentments and the fear and replaced that with the sunlight, but we still got this section of, of sickness that we need to deal with in steps eight and nine. Two stories I like to always tell uh, when we get to this point, and, and one is about Dr. Bob. It was the, the one step that Dr. Bob didn't want to do, right? I mean, Dr. Bob was a doctor, obviously, you know, and he thought that any practice that he would have would be gone if he went out and admitted to his patients that he had been operating and treating them drunk, right? So it was the one step he wouldn't do. Most of us know the story, right? Bill and Bob, we see in the forward to the second edition, talk about that meeting on Mother's Day in 1935. But that's not our Founder's Day, is it? You know, our Founder's Day is June 10th, which isn't accurate anyway, but neither here nor there, right? We turn out that Bill miscalculated the date, or Bob lied about the date, right? That's the new theory, that Bob wanted seven days to drink, so he said it was on the 10th, but it was really on the 17th, right? That might make sense, right? So he's supposed to go to Atlantic City to a medical convention. Every year he goes, he gets drunk. And Ann Smith says, Bill, don't let him go. He's going to get drunk. And Bill says, hey, if if he's going to have to live a life of sobriety, he's going to have to be around liquor. Let him go. Well, Ann was right. He got drunk before he got on the train. So it makes me think maybe he lied about the date. (laughs) And he goes to Atlantic City, drunk the whole time, comes back to his office. His nurse calls over to the Smith house, and Bill's still there in Akron. And uh, he says, come over and get Bob. He's drunk as hell. And by the way, you need to sober him up. He's got surgery in a couple days. And they go pick him up and take him to the house, and they try to sober him up and coffee him up. And 
take him over and do the surgery to the city hospital. And, and Bob's shaking like a leaf, and he says, I can't do this. And, and Bill gives him a couple of beers and maybe a couple of goofballs, a couple of sedatives. And uh, probably Valium might be the equal, equal or Librium might be the uh, equal drug nowadays. And, and Bob goes up and does the surgery. We have no idea how that came out. Uh, Bob was a proctologist, by the way. Uh, I'm glad it wasn't my ass he was working on. But I would imagine if it went bad, our history would say so, you know, or not. I don't know, you know. But we don't have any idea how that happened, how that went. But, but we know this: that he came down. They went back to the Smith House, and Bob jumps in the car and took off. And Bill assumes that the craving kicked in for more liquor and that Bob was on another run. But Bob realized he couldn't pick and choose what steps he was going to do, that he needed to do the ninth step to stay sober. And he went to everybody he could in Akron and made amends for practicing under the influence. And that becomes our Founders Day, June 10th, it's June 17th, actually, 1935. And Bob never drinks for the for the rest, until 1950, to up to the date of his death. And by the way, if you're an addict and you're sitting in here, or if the obsession wasn't lifted right away, Bob suffered from the obsession for two and a half years. Like two and a half years before the obsession went away, before the desire to drink or whatever the hell else he was doing went away. You know how he overcame it? In 15 years, Bob sponsored 5,000 guys and women. 5,000. Figure that math out. That's like taking somebody through the steps every day. <laughs> every day. Now, they were doing it in groups. They were doing it in a half a day. They weren't taking the kind of time that we were taking. Bob would take people through the steps in a half a day. Clarence was doing it in one day. I've done some of it. It works. You know. We take our time. We do it. In, our, Arthur's part of it. We take our time. We do it in four or five weeks. <laughs> you know, you know, one-hour sessions. We take all twelve steps in four weeks. You know, and our the one we do in Deerfield, we give them two weeks to do steps four and five. You know, that's the way this was outlined to do. This was this was about stopping the bleeding. This was not about take your time and recover. This is life and death when we get here. For me, it was life and death when I got here. Thank God I didn't run into somebody who wanted to do a step a year or some shit like that. You know? And there are people out there that were preaching that. You know, they called us, you can't do microwave recovery. Really? When they had 75% and 93% success rates, that's what they were doing. They were taking them through the steps quickly. Let's get the shit off the top. Let's get the scum off the top of the water. Let's go out and help other people and we'll revisit the work. Stop the bleeding. I shared with you guys a couple weeks ago, maybe it was last week, two weeks ago, I think, when my fourth step. My fourth step had like about seven names on it. My sponsor said, I don't want to hear about your third grade teacher. I don't want to hear about the kid that blackened your eye in fourth grade. I want to stop the bleeding. What is taking you out now? And it was about six or seven names that were just killing me. And that's where I started. And we revisited. We'll do another fourth step once we get through the steps. Yeah. Now, I mean, if you look at the book, I do an inventory every night. Just about every night. I've, I've got an inventory. Yeah. The other story I want to tell. 
there's this guy named Frank Buckman. And he starts this hospice for young men. Homeless, sick, alcoholic, whatever. Just wants to help people for free. Wealthy, wealthy family. He forms a corporation. He gets a board of directors. The board of directors take over the corporation. I'm not going to get into the details, but they take over the situation and become a for-profit. And he is pissed. And he walks away from this business, from this hospice. And he just wanders around for a couple years. He is just harboring this resentment. And he wants to kill these people. And he decides to get away on his parents' dime. And he, and he takes a trip to, uh, to England to see a uh, Baptist preacher, a Bap- uh, pre- uh, Reverend Meyer. And uh, it's famous, like he's like the, uh, Billy, the Jimmy Swagger of the day, the Billy Graham of the day, you know. And he goes out to Cambria, England, and he sees this, to see this preacher, but he doesn't see him. He sees a bunch of people going into this, this conference room. And he goes into this conference room, and there's this woman named Jesse Penn Lewis doing a talk. And the talk is on forgiveness. And Frank Buckman has a spiritual experience in that meeting and, the, and the, the theme was, and this is kind of sums up AA, doesn't it? Forgive everybody everything. Forgive everybody everything. If you want to be free, forgive everybody everything. And Buckman has a spiritual experience. And why is that relevant? Well, because he goes on to start, start the Oxford groups, <laughs> right? And then he hooks up with a Sam Shoemaker who starts the Oxford groups in New York City. Why is that even relevant? Well, because Carl Jung tells Roland Hazard that you don't, either you're going to have a spiritual experience or die, and church isn't enough. You need to find more. And Roland Hazard seeks out the Oxford groups, the largest Christian movement of the day. And he hooks up with Frank Buckman. Frank Buckman sends him to Sam Shoemaker in New York City. Why is that relevant? Because Ebby Thatcher gets court-ordered to the Oxford groups only if Rowan Hazard will come and pick him up. And Rowan Hazard comes and picks him up from Vermont and takes him to New York City to the Calvary Mission. And we know where this is going, right? And Ebby Thatcher has a spiritual experience as a result of the program of action in the Oxford groups. And what happens? Bill Wilson comes on his heart. And Ebby Thatcher brings the solution and the program of action to Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson knew what the problem was, but he couldn't stay stopped. He needed this, the spiritual experience and the steps to bring about that spiritual experience, and Ebby Thatcher brings that to him in his kitchen. You know. Seconds and inches, right? The difference between us being here and us not being here. Right? But doesn't that kind of sum up step nine? Forgive everybody everything. Right? Okay, real quick, three rules. See if I can find it. You know, my book fell apart last week, right? <laughs> what did I say? Usually somebody has a book that's fallen apart. They're not, right? <laughs> so how do we go to them? It says we go to them in a helpful and forgiving spirit, right? We're going to go to people that we hate and make amends. Why? Because our life depends on it. And I want more God. I want more of this feeling that I got. I want to keep this feeling that I got in step five. A helpful and forgiving spirit. Three rules. Under no condition do we criticize or argue. Right? 
Rule number two, we don't try to tell them what they should do. And rule number three, their faults are not discussed. This is about us, not about them. This is not about justifying our behavior. This is about cleaning off our side of the street, my side of the street, not theirs. They want to volunteer something, fine. But I don't bring up anything that they did or why I reacted the way I did. And then it goes on to say that they might, some of them might throw us out of our office. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's about the attempt. It's about the desire to make things right. My, uh, with my sponsor, we made a plan, and most of the guys I sponsor, we have a plan before we go into these amends. And, and most importantly, an escape plan. <laughs> right? How do I get out of this amends without having to make an amends? Right? That's what we want. We want to leave it without owing another amends. We don't get to a point where we're arguing with them and want to kick their ass or kick their ass and leave. Right? And they be, be pissed. You're, we, I don't ever want to see you again. Get out of my office. Don't ever come near me again. You're an at. Get out. We made the attempt. You know, I'm sorry you feel that way. Hopefully someday I'll have another opportunity to talk to you. And we leave. Yeah. And it's the same with, the, you know, we do the same thing when it comes to events or something. My first sober wedding, right? An escape plan, right? I'm going to call you at such and such a time. You know, you answer the phone, and if you need to get out of there, you tell them, I got an emergency, I got to go, right? And I'll either come and pick you up, or you can get in your car and you can go. Same with the amends. We want to have an out, right? We, we know what we're going to do before we go in. We have a plan before we go in. It's funny, y'all, the, the first amends he touches on is money. <laughs> Most alcoholics all money. What an understatement, right? Most of mine was money. Most of mine was money. I mean, there was a lot of relationship stuff, but most of it was money. I owed $50,000 in credit card debt when I got here. I owed a, I owed a hundred actually, but I got this uh, bonus from this company that I was part of, and so that my ex wouldn't get it, I paid off half of the credit card debt. But when you get caught up in a snowstorm in South Florida... Those credit cards get racked up quick, man. Yeah. I was uh, I was spending my paychecks, and I actually was sending credit card checks to pay my mortgage, you know, because the paychecks were uh, were going up my nose. And you know what? It, it, thank God for Bill Wilson, right? Make the best deal you can, right? Admit your fault. Admit you're wrong. Tell them why you haven't paid. Make the best deal you can, and that's what I did. I called every one of them. Either close the account, and can I make a payment plan? Some of them took 50 bucks a week. You know, some wouldn't do, wouldn't do anything, so I would take that money and transfer it to a no-interest credit card, six months no-interest credit card or whatever it was. And then when that six months was up, I'd transfer it again. You know? And I made the best deal I could. It took me 10 years. I think it was Charlie that said, and I, I tried, I said, you know how long it's going to take me to pay that off? And he says, yeah, probably the same amount of time if you never sent them anything. You know, just start sending, just start chipping away at it. It took 10 years. You know, and I was debt-free. Credit cards were gone. And I don't rack them up anymore. You know, very rare do I ever carry a balance. I pay them off. You know, I'm not going to spend money that I don't have anymore. 
You know, that's what I did all my life. Spend money I don't have to impress people I don't even know or like. You know? But I'll look good and I'll make it to work. <laughs> I'll spend 300 to go to work to make 80. <laughs> I would uh, mention the IRS. Uh, that was a concern. That was a concern. And uh, I didn't have to call them. They called me. I got sober in March. Taxes are due in April. I filed my first return that I, don't re- that I remember, you know, in, I don't, in 20 years. I don't, I don't remember any of the other ones. I signed them. I don't know what was on them. And... Uh, Probably that's why uh, the, the flag went up like this doesn't look anything like the last 20 years. And, uh, and they audited me and called me up. And, I, and I, you know, Bill Wilson just makes some great suggestions. I'm not going by myself. As a matter of fact, I don't think I'm capable of being honest. You know? So I'm just going to go there and shut up. I'm going to bring an accountant with me. I'm going to introduce him, and then I'm going to leave. And that was my plan. And that's what I did. I told them who I was and what I was. Told my name. I'm, I just got sober in March. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I plan on never drinking again. I don't know what's on those tax returns. You and Mr. C figure it out and let me know. <laughs> and I'm going. I'm leaving. And uh, by the way, I still don't do my taxes. I, I'm just not capable. You know, it's spiritual warfare for me. You know, it's Yoda and Darth Vader arguing with each other. You know, whether whether the expense is a business expense or a personal expense. You know. So I just hand it all over to the accountant. I let him do it and tell me what I'm getting back or what I owe. I don't, I don't, I don't want any part of it. I don't, I don't want to get involved. But they, they accepted it. And they went back the first year. I owed them $800 in penalties and I don't know what it was, $1,500 in back taxes. And, and, uh, and they let the rest go. They said, stay the course. You know, and I wasn't going to argue with them. <laughs> I walked out of the office, and I just, like I said, I, I don't have that. My heart doesn't fall to the floor when the IRS letter comes in the mailbox, right? When they used to come, I'd throw them in a drawer and just think they'll go away, you know? Now I open them. I'm not afraid of them anymore. That's the kind of stuff we're trying to get rid of, that cloud that follows us around. I was... I think it was 2009 I started this, the big book study at uh, one of the halfway houses. And we got to this point. And, uh, and what surfaced was an incident that wasn't even on my four-step or my harms to other step. In the early 70s, uh, me and a couple other guys, we were entrepreneurs, uh, we used to hang out on the corner and sell goods. You know? And there was this cop, Nick, who used to harass us constantly. I mean, for no good reason. You know? And under the influence one night, the three of us decided to, dis- to destroy his brand-new Monte Carlo. Right? And I didn't even remember it. I'm doing this study at this halfway house, and we're talking about financial amends, right? And it surfaces. And what happens, what Nick does, because we're hiding, there's, you know, somebody informed, you know, and uh, told them who it was that did it. It was probably 100 people at that party, you know. And uh, 
And he, all he wanted us to do was, he said, if you turn yourself in and make financial restitution, I'll let you go. Now, I didn't know at the time what Nick was trying to accomplish. He was looking out for us, but I didn't know that, right? And I didn't realize the harm that we had done either, right? All I knew is that I never paid Nick the money, right? This, this money thing came up in the, in the ninth step, and I knew I never, and it was only $600. It was $600 a piece that we owed him, you know, somewhere in there, 600 to 1000 and every time I'd see Nick, he'd ask me for money, and I'd get whatever money I had, I'd give somebody to hold, and he'd search me. I wouldn't have any money on me, you know. And it surfaced. And maybe I wasn't in a position to do anything or even understand what Nick was trying to do at the time. But what I did realize is I needed to make amends for it. So I started looking for Nick and the phone book, and I actually called the Wilkinsburg Police Department in Pittsburgh. Uh, they will not tell you uh, any information about a police officer. They call it stalking. And, uh, and so I never could get a hold of him. So what I decided to do uh, after discussing it with my sponsor was start making donations to the Pittsburgh Homeless Children Fund in Nick's name, you know, a monthly donation, you know, until I paid off the $600. Well, that was 15 years ago. I still send a donation there. I, I just love the charity. Uh, but I wanted to get right with the universe. I wanted to make an attempt to get right. So it's been 15 years now, right? And last year, I'm with my sponsor, and we're on our way to my home group in Deerfield, and Dave P. calls me, one of my old running buddies from back then, right? And Dave and I start swapping war stories, right? Do you remember when? You know, you know, the tragically funny stories that we like to talk about. When we robbed the gas station and took off and they got my plate number and then they arrested me. And I was like, yeah, it was freaking crazy, you know. And I said, you remember the time we destroyed that cop's car? And he goes, no, I wasn't there. And I said, yeah, Nick. And I used his last name. He goes, Nick, that's my uncle. I said, no way. Right? He said, yeah, way. I said, well, where is he? He said, oh, he died. He said, but his daughter is on Facebook. You can look her up and he gave me her name. So I go on Facebook and I find her on Facebook. And I send her a message. And I tell her the story. You know, I said, I, I hope I'm not out of line. You know, and I, and I tell her what happened under the influence. And I got sober in 91. And part of my recovery is to make amends. And I've always wanted to make amends to your father. And I'm sorry to hear about his passing. But what I wrote was, I realize now what Nick was trying to do. Nick was trying to tell me how I had harmed his family, not what I did to his car. You know, I realized now that it wasn't about the car. It was about the fear that I put into his family. His family was afraid to leave the house because somebody had just destroyed their car. Right? And his daughter, I didn't even think I would hear for her. His daughter, though, writes me back on Messenger and says, yeah, I hear stories like that about Nick all the time. I'm sure he's happy that you're sober. I'm sure he's looking down from heaven, smiling on you. But I hear story after story about people who tell me about Nick trying to turn their lives around. And that's why he didn't have us arrested. 
He just wanted to tell us what harm we had done. I didn't even, it didn't even register at the time. It took 15 years for it to register. 15 years sober for it to register. She says, did it have anything to do with paint? And I said, yes, it was. And I told her what we had done. And she, she said, yes, I was five. And we were afraid to leave the house. And I did all I could to tell her how I deeply regret what was taking place. And, I, and I, if I could, I would like to make amends to either her or her mother. Because her mother was, she said her mother was still alive. And she said, I will get with my mother and, uh, and ask her. And her mother uh, said to continue making my donations to the Pittsburgh Homeless Children Fund in Nick's name. And, uh, and she sent me her address where I could send her a letter of amends. And uh, funny, right? I mean, it's like when, when you're ready, God puts it in front of you, you know? I would have never imagined that I would be able to make that amends to Nick. Yeah. I was, uh, look, I, I have sideswiped city blocks of cars. You know what I mean? It's just like, how do you make amends? For, I don't even know who those people were. I left Derby Lounge one night and sideswiped the whole block. You know, I mean, there were parts laying all over the streets the next morning. You know, I got out there with Bondo, you know, fixing my car, you know, so nobody will know it was me, right? And, uh, I mean, you know, Shannon and I were at church one time. Some guy backed into us. I said, there's one, you know. Let it go. (laughs) There's one car. Check, you know. (laughs) I mean, it's just, you know, whatever I can do now. I want more of that, you know what I mean? And that felt good. That didn't feel like he got away with something. It felt like I did the right thing. That's the transformation that takes place. So I'm at my home group. I got to tell this story. I don't always tell it, but I'm at my home group, and the basket goes around. I pull out my money. I got about $400 on me. I don't know why I was carrying $400, but I had about $400 on me. And I take out whatever and throw it in the basket. And, uh, and that's the end of that. And then at the end of the meeting, there's a guy comes up and says, uh, you guys have any big books? It was a big book meeting, and the guy's buying a big book after the meeting. He says, you got any big books for sale? And we said, yeah, we got some big books for sale. And he buys a couple of big books, one for him and one for the guy with him, and he leaves. And I go home, and I get up the next morning, and uh, where I usually put my money, it's not there. Right? And I go to my pants, and I go and I bring the money's not in there either. I lost the money. Right? Now, my mind goes, who would buy a big book after the meeting? somebody who stole my money this is where my mind goes right now that or the money's laying in the women's club somewhere I dropped it maybe in the bathroom so I'm obsessed now I go over to the women's club that night and I search the whole room I don't find the money right I go back home I get up for next work the next day I'm still obsessed I'm like crazy over this money All day long, that's all I can think about. I go back to the women's club. Can't find it. I go home. I think there must be somewhere I didn't look. I jump on my motorcycle, and I take my motorcycle to the women's club again. It's the third time I'm at the women's club searching the women's club for this money. I'm obsessed. I can't believe this money. Somebody had to steal it. That guy that bought the big books, I'm sure he's the one that stole this shit. 
while I'm at the women's club, I, I, I don't know, I, I have this epiphany, right? I have this, you need to let this go. <laughs> you know, let's go out to the Everglades. Let's go out to the end of Locks Road. Let's sit in the Everglades, watch the sunset, and let's just get right with God, right? So I got out there, and I'm sitting there getting quiet, looking at the gators and shit, and watching this sunset. And here's what comes on my heart. I moved to Florida in 1980. Uh, in, the, in the mid-80s, uh, I was involved in opening up a bunch of appliance stores. So I was doing the build-outs for this appliance company. And me and the AC guy needed to go buy some parts for an air conditioner. So we went over to this air conditioner supply house, went in, bought the parts, and came out. When we came out, somebody who had just cashed their check in the, dropped their money all over the ground. It was about $400. <laughs> okay. Me and this electric, the AC guy looked around. Nobody was around. We picked up the money. We split it $200 a piece and went on our merry way. Now, how does that come on my heart sitting there meditating? Right? I hadn't thought about that forever. I mean, since it happened. And this voice said, now you know how he felt. Now you know how he felt when you stole his money. I went, shit. I owe an amends. I owe an amends to that guy. I'll never find that guy. So every homeless guy I see on the side of the road, (laughs) that guy gets a five spot or a ten spot, whatever I got. I mean, I don't even get, none of my business what he does with it. None of my business. I want to get right with the universe. I can't make amends to that guy. I'm going to, I'm going to give these guys a couple bucks. Yeah. So I usually don't wear a watch unless I'm coming to a meeting or something like that. I don't wear it working because I, I deal with stuff that can get scratched, so I don't wear any jewelry. And uh, I go home that night, and next morning I get up, and I reach up on my nightstand, where my watches and stuff are, and the money's up there. Okay. I had never put my money up there before, ever. I've been living in that house since 1982. My money never went on top of that dresser. Okay. But what a blessing. You know, I got to make another amends. Yeah. I mean, I got a, millions of, I mean, I, shoplifting, burglarizing cars, stealing cars, my poor neighbors, you know, if their cars were open and the keys were in it, or it, 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 back in the 70s, you didn't have to have keys in it. Two bobby pins, right? Anybody that knows their shit, right? You unplug the ignition, you put two bobby pins in there, it starts right up. Right? The old Ford, you wrap a wire around a battery and the solenoid starts right up. You know? I drove their cars around many times. My poor stepfather, I, borrowed, I used to borrow his car to go to the, the store and come back two, three weeks later. You know? Sometimes it come back on a flatbed. You know. One time he came back missing a rear wheel. <laughs> Did a little trail riding with his car. You know. Just no regard for right or wrong or her, anybody else's feelings. You know. I mean, it's just there's nothing I could do to repay all the damage that I've done out there. You know, the, you rob Publix or Walgreens or somebody like that. You, you know, I tell my guys, put a number on it. You know, let's find out what charities they're involved in and let's start making donations to the charity that they're involved in. You know, I mean, you go to the Walgreens manager and tell him you stole $300. I mean, what's he going to do with it? You know, 
I don't know if he can even take it. But we can make an amends. We can get right with the universe. A lot of my guys were criminals. The other part of the criminal offenses. Uh, we got to face it. We don't want that dark cloud polluting our recovery. Yeah. I went to I went to buy when I first met Shannon. I went to buy a, a weapon. Found out I had a warrant. <laughs> no idea from 1974. That little trafficking thing that I talked about. I was I was a. There was still a, a, a uh, what do they call it? Uh, there was no disposition, right? It was, there was, they didn't list a degree or a disposition on the charges. It was still out there from 1974. Right? I had to do what I had to do to make it go away and get an attorney and, and uh, get it expunged. But there's guys that have warrants, man. We got to go face the warrant. But we do, like Bill Wilson says, and we get, we get prepared. We get an attorney. We find out what the consequences are going to be. One of my guys had a warrant up in New England. You know, it's got to go away. We got to face it. Can't live in fear. You can't. Every time you see a cop pull up behind you, your heart drop to your feet. You know, that's not sober. That's hanging in there. So he did. He got an attorney, found out what was going, goes up and faces the charges, gets in front of the judge, tells the judge who and what he is, that he's in recovery, he's got this much time. His attorney vouches for him. Turns out the prosecuting attorney's in N.A. How does that happen? Right? See, God's running the show now. We're on different footing now. I'm not running the show anymore. God's running the show. All I know is it's going to be okay. I don't know what it is. But I know it's going to be okay. I'm not in charge of it. He left that courtroom, calls me, says, you're not going to believe what happened. I said, are you kidding me? I believe anything that happens in this program. Yeah, I got probation. I don't have to go to jail. I quoted Fred to him. Right? It was the end of a perfect day. Not a cloud on the horizon. Where are you going, Rick? <laughs> and he said, I'm going to go to a meeting right now and share how blessed I am. I said, yeah, there you go. There you go. You got to face the stuff, you know. The, the, the toughest stuff for me was with family and my and exes. You know, it's, uh, thank God Bill wrote this and not Lois, right? It says, if, what's it say? If we've been wild, should we tell her? And he says, not always. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Uh, look, I had two choices. Either I admit that I had cheated and blow up the relationship, or I don't admit it and sacrifice my recovery and live a life of quiet desperation or drink. Or drink. You know, those are, I talked about that uh, in the fourth step. There's bells that you can't ring. You can't unring certain bells. That's one of them. There's going to be a consequence to pay either way. And I battled with it. And I don't have any real good advice for my sponsees either. You know, it talks about in a general way, maybe you would admit. We surely don't list any names and, and give somebody that... that that they can vent on, and it works both ways, you know. I'll tell you what happened to me is 
I was asked to speak, and this is like in my first year of recovery, so I have a lot of wreckage, not much recovery, you know, and that's usually what happens when you speak early in recovery because you don't have a lot of you don't have a lot of time. So, so I had a long war story, you know, and really what I did was tortured this room with my fifth step, basically, you know, and uh, and my ex-wife who had just dropped the restraining order and uh, and the charges. Uh, came into the back room because she wanted to see what this AAA was all about. And, uh, and she's in the back corner of the meeting room while I'm sharing all my stuff. And, and, I, and I put it all out there. I mean, you know, I put the women out there, the, all, the money, everything was out there. My buddy Jeff is, is sitting like where Norm is, and my buddy Jeff is going, and he's pointing to the back, and I go, yeah, I got this, Jeff. You know, and... Uh, Man, that door slammed, and if she could have put that restraining order back on, I guarantee you she would have. And, uh, and, and the shit hit the fan. The shit hit the fan. But let me tell you something. The healing began. The healing began. It was a rough moment and a rough week. <laughs> but the healing began. Now I'm free. I don't have this cloud over me anymore. I don't have to worry about who she's talking to, who she's going to run into. It's just out there now. It's out in the universe. And she realizes that she isn't crazy like I told her she was, that she wasn't imagining things like I told her she was. And now she knew exactly who and what I was. But I want to become something different, and I had the desire to become something different. And the healings in both of us became. Now, that was just my experience. I don't know what to tell you to do in that situation. That's on, that's, you know, we can discuss it, you know, but that's, that's on you. You know, what can you live with? How free do you want to be? Right? How free do you want to be? I know I, I got a, almost out of time, but maybe next week I want to address uh, some family stuff, especially with uh, with my mother, my stepfather, and my children, uh, because they were the main victims. And I know, you know. I, I hear a lot of people want to, you know, I think our, our instincts is to make amends to the family first. And I don't know if that's always a good idea, you know, because first off, I didn't have a lot of credibility. And, and I was still a little bit selfish. I still wanted something from them. I still wanted to get back in the house, you know. Like I was, I think I was a little over 90 days sober and I called my ex-wife and said, hey, good news, I'm an alcoholic. You know, I found out I'm an alcoholic. I just can't drink. And if I don't drink anymore, I won't be that same person anymore. She goes, no, you're an asshole. And she hung up the phone. You know? But what did I, why was I doing that? Because I wanted back in the house. Because I wanted something. This is a different deal here. I don't want anything out of this anymore. You know? I want to give back. I want to make things right. So when I to go with the family, it's important that I have some kind of track record. I have some kind of credibility when I show up. I need to show up different. I need to be like Bill said about Ebby. There was something in his eyes, and I see it in my guys, my sponsees and stuff. When they're when when the light comes on, you know what I'm saying. You just see something different. I need them to see that when I show up. And then I'll have some credibility. So maybe it's not wise to go immediately to the family. Because they're still waiting for the shoe to drop. You know? They're just waiting for one temper tantrum, and they know I'm going, I'm going on another run. You know? So we'll get back to that next week. Thanks for letting me be here tonight. Mm-hmm.
Let's thank Pat one more time. And then let's have Keith with our secretary's report. Hi, my name's Keith, and I'm an alcoholic. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. We also have QR codes on the back of the chairs, Venmo and Cash App. Uh, you can now um, participate in seventh tradition with Tap to Pay. Um, and I've asked uh, Maddie to come read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in AA identify as recovered rather than recovering, and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Matty from an alcoholic, Maddie. member of the East Naples Men's Group. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. Page 23. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thank you. Thank you, Maddie. Uh, 1940s-style big book sponsorship from forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. If anyone is in need of a sponsor, please raise your hand. Can the recovered alcoholics in the room please raise your hands? Nice. If your hand was not raised, we suggest that you hang out with those whose were. (laughs) Uh, We have CDs, mugs, large print big books, and little red books um, for sale in the back. we meet every Thursday starting promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Um, do we have some announcements, I believe, for um, this week? We have Broward County Intergroup. Let's see. New, okay. I can't read it from here, but we do have uh, information in the back if you want to read some pamphlets. And um, see you next week. We have tonight's session and all past speaker podcasts at alcoholicsandgod.org. I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study group. And those who wish to thank the speaker, please line up in the center aisle. And we're going to close with the Lord's Prayer in our seats again. Our Father, who art in heaven, how I be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thy is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Strong.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. See the light. 
song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Just won't say 